0: but he, in the work of purifying sin, sat down at the majesty on high, in the right hand of the majesty on high, and in verse 4 is inherited a more excellent name than they. Chapter 2 gets more into Jesus with all of this glory. If we understand how Jesus is to be honored, the privileges and the rights that he has in this position, then we can begin to be motivated and impacted in the way that Jesus chose to allow all of his rights to be stripped and forsaken so that he could then become the source of our salvation. So verses 1 through 4 in establishing this, the first point the writer makes is actually the first point he made in the first place in chapter 1, which is listen. So chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his his own will." Uh, Just first thing to pay attention to is verse 3. He talks about the greatness of our salvation when in chapter 1 he really hasn't said very much about salvation at all. Chapter 1 was emphasizing Jesus and how to see Jesus from God's word in a way by faith where we can understand his glory. But I think that's the point. We can understand how great salvation is when we see Jesus. And how we treat our salvation, how we invest in our salvation, how we respond to our salvation, the diligence we give to our salvation, actually demonstrates whether or not we respect Jesus. And so complacency, drifting from God's word, treating faith as if it's something casual and common, is actually an evidence that you do not actually see or understand Jesus as he is and that you're in danger of losing touch with your faith completely. And that's the exhortation here. Another thing I appreciate in verse 1, the writer is not just coming down on the audience. Notice he says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. The writer is emphasizing that there's a commonality of a danger that nobody is exempt from. And again, how I treat Jesus by faith it really just demonstrates whether or not I appreciate the danger of the reality of my human condition and that I can easily lose touch with the promises that I've been given, right? So he urges them to pay much, close, much closer attention to what was heard than I think in comparison to the way that God's word was heard in the Old Testament, even by those who valued it. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 Um, ends up, I think it's verse 19. I thought I had that. I do have it in my notes. Galatians 3, 19. The law is said to have been ordained through angels. And if you look at verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 2, I think the word of the Old Testament is what's being uh, spoken of as being um, spoken through the angels and unalterable and everything received a just penalty. Um, I want you to think, how is that true? Like when I read the Old Testament, it looks like people were pretty much getting away with violating the law. I mean, think about Manasseh. We talked about him just briefly this morning. I mean, Manasseh sacrificed his children to idols and there's basically an entire generation of Israelites who not only lived in that condition, but then Israelites came after them who just built on that condition even more. I think what the Hebrew writer is trying to draw our attention to is that when God speaks, those words never fail in judgment. And I think Jesus crucified, the way that he lived his life in fulfillment of the law, the way that Jesus treated God's law, that although so much time had passed between Moses and Jesus, ultimately not any word was undone through the disobedience of God's people through that time frame. So even though Israel was just constantly disbelieving God's promises, God's word was still more faithful and true than their disobedience. In Romans chapter 2, verse 12, if you want to turn back there just really briefly, um, in the midst of, in Romans 2, Paul expressing that nobody ultimately escapes accountability, uh, yeah, accountability to God. In Romans 2, 12, he says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law Will be judged by the law, right? So the idea is if somebody was living under the law and violated the law, ultimately they would not escape the fact that they would be judged by the written word of God under that law. It's very motivating, I think, in this context to understand that I ultimately cannot escape giving God an account for how I treat salvation. And we have to be personally aware of the accountability we're going to give to god to be moved by a proper sense of fear right it's easy to get lost in the crowd it's easy to just let circumstances begin to diminish my appreciation for god's word when i'm surrounded by unbelief and obviously none of us can fully embody the kind of reality that um the kind of reality of the truths we've been given and that is going to lead us into verse five through the rest of the chapter but before we look more at that, the warning, just in verse 1, is not against entirely forsaking the word. It's in drifting away from it. Uh, in verse 3, similarly, again, the warning is not forsaking the salvation, but neglecting the salvation. Those words are kind of interesting. If you look them up in like a lexicon or you go online and you can look at de- definitions of Uh, Greek words. Um, So in verse 1, this word for drift is actually never used anywhere else in the Bible. And it's a word that means for like something to obviously just by what it's saying, drift away. It's like for something to pass through your hands or something to be put out of the mind slowly. Uh, I think maybe an image could be like, you know, when you're rowing in a boat and you're trying to get to a certain place, but there might be a slight current if you just totally give up rowing or paddling You're eventually going to be taken by the current, maybe to a different place than where you were intending, right? So the idea is you just, you stop exerting a sense of purposeful diligence to get to the destination you're you're working yourself towards. And then this idea of neglecting, the word means to be careless towards, uh, or literally just like the the word is translated, to be negligent of. A way this helps me to think about this is procrastination. Um, so when I was younger, I've said many times as an illustration in other sermons, uh, when I was younger, I procrastinated a lot, right? And because of that, there would be so many tasks that would just slip by every day. And then eventually, like, I would end up in the long run suffering an, a great amount of stress and trying to, like, catch up on the work that I'd been neglecting, right? So, like, the situation wasn't being solved. It was still there. And eventually, I was going to have to give an account for an assignments, Usually it was schoolwork an assignment that was indefinitely due that I was neglecting. So it's the idea of just treating God's word, treating salvation as something that you just continuously allow to pass by. I think a way to think about this, maybe in a more applicable way, how do you respond to suffering and temptation? The Hebrews, these Hebrew Christians, were guilty of neglecting their salvation and drifting from it because of how they were responding to suffering, right? Turn to uh, Exodus chapter 6. Look at verse 9. Exodus chapter 6, verse 9. Uh, I think, like, for this, I don't want to necessarily think about with an application of this um, tasks like works that we can be guilty of neglecting in our salvation, but more just how do you think about things related to salvation? Look at Exodus chapter 6, verse 9. When Moses spoke words of salvation and promise to the Israelites and they were in bondage it says so Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage the idea is like by that point Moses' words seemed like it brought on more suffering and their bondage in Egypt actually became a lot worse in the moment because of the things that were being presented to Pharaoh about the Israelites seeking deliverance right So sometimes it can seem like serving God, reading his word, thinking about him, is actually only adding on top of our suffering. And if we just withdrew ourselves, we could find relief from our suffering. So I think the main idea is how do you think about things related to salvation and Jesus? Is Jesus a source of added burden and suffering? Or even in added suffering, is he still a source of relief? because of his promises, right? So that's where the Hebrew writer is now going to focus in the next section. So the idea is we need to understand how we can relate to Jesus. The more we understand his glory, the more motivating it becomes that we can relate to Jesus in powerful ways. Uh, Verse 5 through uh, 9 is where we'll start in this section. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So verses six through eight is a quotation from Psalm eight. And the Hebrew writer does a lot of like bringing Old Testament scriptures together to make like a point about Jesus and the point that he's going to make here through this chapter is very amazing. The idea that it seems to be, especially with the way he quotes verse, verse six and builds on this point of like, we don't actually see the promises of this psalm really fulfilled in visible creation. The idea is like God's place for man and the glory of God's relationship with man and like what God's purpose for man is at the time where that was written was just kind of a mystery, right? Like, The writer understood that there was something so special about man that leads him to write what he speaks of in verse 7, that he's crowned with glory and honor. Everything has been put under his feet. But the writer of Hebrews also acknowledges we don't don't see these promises fulfilled in anybody except in verse 9, Jesus. That Jesus brought the hidden mystery of man's place before God, the value of man before God, and how we inherit this value before God, this glory. How does this happen? What does that look like? The Psalms, just like in the last chapter, they just weave together promises of the Messiah with just revealing the depth of how God brings comfort and praise through suffering, right? So the Psalms is one of the greatest places in the Bible to really understand how the Christ partakes of the weakest and most meager components of the human condition. So in verse 9, we see how Jesus, being made a little lower than the angels for a while, because of the suffering of death, was crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste God for everyone. So in terms of the visible creation, we know that because of God's promise that There's some kind of salvation that God is bringing to mankind, but what we see is weak and what we see is uh, inadequate in comparison to those promises. But we see that Jesus, through weakness and inadequacy and suffering, was not a method of his defeat, but actually a method of victory. That it was the method through which God's promises would be fulfilled. The rest of Hebrews just hammers on the point that suffering is not a tool for withdrawing from god but suffering because of jesus has become a tool of god to be used for victory Um, and jesus proved that and brought that into view through his own suffering so let's look at verse 10 through 13 and see how he continues to build on that point for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. All right, so how Jesus... um, Sanctifies and is perfected and perfects through suffering is related to these uh, quotations from the Old Testament, one being Psalm 22 and the other being Isaiah 8. And I want to show you how the writer is pulling ideas out of these passages where there are actually greater themes that connect to the central point that he's making. Um, the idea, again, is God using suffering as a tool for his purpose in victory, when instead it can be a tool used by Satan to discourage and to demotivate. Um, Turn to Psalm 22. I want to start looking at verses 1 through 5. Uh, This is one of the more common psalms associated with Jesus because Jesus quoted it himself on the cross. Uh, Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And reading through verse 5, Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. So just pause there for a second. The situation looks hopeless. By visible appearance, it does not look like there's going to be any deliverance. He's crying for deliverance, and it just it seems futile. Verse 3, yet you are holy. O oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. The idea is the psalmist is placing all of his confidence in the fact that God, not by sight of circumstance, but by faith through what God has done in the past, God will deliver even though it literally looks like there is no hope of deliverance. Look at uh, further verses 14 and 15. He says, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot and my tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. Um, So the psalmist is put into the most hopeless sounding kind of condition. He's suffering in a way where it's like he's been completely poured of all his strength and he says his strength is dried up, but Something that's not as well known about Psalm 22 is the shift that begins in verse 22, which is quoted in Hebrews chapter 2. In verse 22, it's a shift of praise for God's deliverance after the hopelessness of the circumstances that he's seeking deliverance from in verses 1 through 21. Verse 22 reads, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly I will praise you. That's the verse quoted in Hebrews 2. But he continues, You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him, and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. That's going to be the application the Hebrew writer is going to make at the end of this chapter. That no matter how things look, Jesus has proven beyond any capacity for doubt, God will always deliver those who trust in him. And it's through death that hope is brought and praise is given to God. So the idea of Psalm 22 is the psalmist wanted others to see that God will never fail his promises. Even when things look hopeless, even when people abandon God because things look like God will not fulfill his word, his words will never be proven empty to those who yield themselves to continue to trust. Um, So verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren, is going to relate to the idea in Isaiah chapter 8. In both Isaiah 8 and in Psalm 22, the person speaking in the context becomes like a leader to lead others to think in the same way that they think, to have the same quality of faith that they've had. So Isaiah chapter 8 to start in verse 11. On the surface just like Psalm 22, Psalm 22 sounds like on the surface it's just David. But then the Hebrew writer quotes it as actually Jesus who's ultimately speaking. Isaiah 8 is the same thing. It sounds like on the surface this is Isaiah the prophet just reflecting on his circumstances. But the Hebrew writer quotes this as ultimately being the words of Jesus himself. So I want to read a bigger section of this kind of like Psalm 22 and just make some points of how the bigger narrative here weaves into the same thought that the Hebrew writer is is proving as well. Verse 11 through 18. For thus the Lord spoke to me, and that's, again, Isaiah speaking personally, with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people calls a conspiracy. You are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. That is going to be the point of Hebrews 2. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. So it seems like Isaiah is speaking now. And I will wait for the Lord who has hidden his face, who is hiding his face from the house of Judah and Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. That begins the quote now in Hebrews 2. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel and from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So it seems like the point of what the prophet is saying is even though he is surrounded by people who are not taking God's word seriously, he's surrounded by people who don't see God's promises as being real or that anything that he's saying is going to be fulfilled, he's making it clear that trusting God by faith, it is possible to have a full sense of fear and reverence and faith, even when by circumstance things are very Discouraging. And that's what the psalmists were constantly confronted with. Would their faith fail because, by circumstance, others around them were progressively losing their hope in God? And the psalmists conti- continuously kept their trust in God. Isaiah 8, especially verse 16 through 18, seems like Isaiah is choosing to trust in the Lord even though his fellow brethren are forsaking their faith. And there are others who are being inspired by Isaiah um, to take upon themselves that same faith. Um, so trusting that God will act and that his word is true even when others are not believing it, even when others give you reason to be discouraged. Um, in application from this, before we look into the last section, this is something that Devin has helped me with in his faith. Um, I don't know if you've heard people in reflecting maybe on the condition of certain circumstances, maybe at churches where they are, or groups that they're in, or things they're hearing about. And you'll hear people say things like, you know, it just really discourages me. You know, I just find that so discouraging. And what Devin has said that's helped me in the past, and by the way, I didn't get Devin's permission to use this illustration, but uh, what Devin has helped me think about by his faith is there's a different way to talk about those things that maybe doesn't make it sound like, we have an excuse to withdraw from God because of others' unbelief, right? That there's a way of thinking about God, there's a way of thinking about salvation that is actually able to continue to motivate us to seek him diligently even because of the unfaithfulness of others. And I think that's what the psalmist was speaking to in Psalm 22. That's what Isaiah was speaking to in Isaiah chapter 8, is that God's people are constantly confronted with the choice. Will I allow my faith to be discouraged because of others around me who are choosing to lose it? Because of others around me who are choosing to withdraw by circumstance rather than by faith? Um, Turn back to Hebrews chapter 2, if you're turned away from there. So the idea, again, like the, the, the main point that the Hebrew writer is making is the very things that most commonly discourage us and withdraw our hearts from trusting in the Lord are actually the very things that have the greatest opportunity to encourage us, to embolden us, and to relate us to Jesus as the centerpiece of our faith. So verse 14, if we're able to see these things, then we can understand how we are liberated by Jesus progressively uh, in his work as priest. Verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to, the, to come to the aid of those who are tempted. First point of emphasis is verse uh, 14. Notice that it says that Jesus partook of flesh and blood, so that through death he might render the New American Standard says powerless him who had the power of death. I don't know if you've thought about that. Jesus actually stripping Satan of all of his power doesn't give the implication that Satan has like some authority left over after Jesus's work. Um, and a way that I've heard this referred to when being tempted. I've heard a brother refer to the time of temptation and choosing at that point whether or not I'm going to give in and sin or not. That giving in to sin when tempted is like submitting yourself to the loser. Like Satan has completely lost the battle. So surrendering ourselves to Satan in times of temptation when we know the Lord, we know he's overcome, we know that through death he overcame, that he succeeded in times of temptation, that his priesthood is available to us, just makes no sense, right? So for one, I think a perspective that we need to have is seeing Satan as stripped of his power specifically through death, but that suffering at one point, the suffering of death, was a legitimate tool that Satan had, something that just like the psalmist recognized, there needed to be hope given to those who are discouraged and lose their hope when confronted with that suffering. Um, The suffering that used to... uh, caused those to lose hope who had faith, now is very clearly a tool of God's victory. Um, with how he relates that then to Jesus being equipped as a priest to give aid also to those who are tempted, um, I think the main application of this entire section of scripture is how much we need to understand we can relate ourselves to Jesus. Um, think I've had a lot of wrong thoughts about Jesus that have actually disassociated me from being able to relate to him. One of those things is I've thought in the past that Jesus had too many privileges being the son of God therefore that therefore I can't relate to his struggles or maybe he can't relate to my struggles because of the amount of privileges that he had. Um, I've also thought before that I've sinned in ways that I just can't imagine Jesus ever being tempted to sin in those ways, right? So I actually, instead of purposely trying to relate myself to Jesus, I actually disassociate myself from Jesus, which is the opposite application of this text. I think we're being encouraged to actually understand how wrong that way of thinking is and to understand that the goal of our faith is to actually work to understand ways that Jesus has first related himself to us and that him not sinning actually more fully equips him through suffering to serve us and to know how to give us aid. Um, I think a way to, to think about this is that the Hebrew writer, I think, strips down the most core principles of what temptation is so that Jesus could relate to all temptation. If you think about For instance, two people who are in a conflict, as an illustration of how Jesus can relate to our temptation. If, like, if Phoebe were to try to push Ella over, right, she could probably do that if she tried hard enough, and maybe if, like, Ella's, like, footing maybe was unstable and she fell over, right? Um, But that's kind of like us. You know, like, Satan really doesn't have to push very hard to overcome us. But think of if Glenn were to stand behind Ella on one side, Jason on the other side, and then Mike, like, pressed on the backs of both of those guys, how easy would it be for Phoebe to push Ella over? How much strength would Phoebe have to exert to then try to push in a way she hadn't before, right? So I think the idea is when you really strip down to the core what temptation really is and what causes somebody to yield and give in to temptation to sin, it's really that the amount of pressure they're receiving is too much and they yield their strength. Jesus actually had less advantage because he didn't sin. Because since he did not give in to temptation, what that means is he had to experience greater pressure and greater force that we never feel. And because he experienced greater pressure and greater force to try to get him to yield himself, what that means is he understands even better than us how much hope we need. He understands the kind of power that God must exert, that he must exert to be able to help us and help us to have endurance and patience. But he also is able to have compassion on us as he, in enduring, watched as others lost their hope. Think about the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the people that he had been working to equip for his entire ministry, when they saw the result of his ministry, they lost their hope and they abandoned him, right? Jesus understands compassionately, better than anyone ever could, the needs involved in our suffering, the needs involved in our temptation, and we can trust that since Jesus then is a high priest, that he is actively working to give us hope, to give us help, to give us reassurance, to create a way for us to find endurance. And ultimately, the tools that he gives us, we're going to find are in one another in chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, right? Jesus' goal in his suffering was to give others hope. The goal of Jesus' suffering was to give others others hope and because of that joy of the capability he knew that he would attain through the work of his ministry to be able to give others hope he had endurance even to the cross so one of the big applications of this lesson is yes jesus himself is ultimately our source of help but how god gives that help is us taking care of one another and striving to give deliberate encouragement to remind each other of the greatness of the salvation we've received, which is really, in a concise way, it's the Hebrew letter. The Hebrew letter is one man writing to many people to remind them of their salvation, to remind them of Jesus in ways that they were neglecting, and to bring back into their minds what they had access to because of Jesus' work. But I think in that as well, with the need that we have to embody these things, still Jesus ultimately is our sole source of salvation. Verse 18, one of the things that I asked in the last lesson, is Jesus, is God more active now or was he more active in the Old Testament where we see him maybe more personally, more visibly responding and acting within his nation? I think the Hebrew letter's answer to that is God is infinitely more active, infinitely more powerfully active now because of Jesus's ministry than he ever could be before. So notice it says, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. One of the big exhortations in the Hebrew letter is to see that God's deliverance was not just a one-time thing when we were initially saved from our sins, that God's deliverances are an ongoing work that by faith we can see in our lives to continuously give him praise for ways that we are delivered. Um, think a way to see this in an applicable sense. Um, I think generally every day we are tempted. There's some way we're being temptate- tempted every day, even if The form of that sometimes may not be very easy to really isolate in our minds to notice. But I think the encouragement here is to see the ways that we're tempted so that we can then, as we endure through that temptation, give God praise for supplying what was needed to provide endurance for that. To open our eyes and to not neglect temptation, but to see those times as opportunities to give God greater praise for his response to our cry and him answering our prayers. I think even in sin, that if we give in to temptation, if we sin, that if we've obviously been gifted with life still, even after sinning, to just repent and give God praise that he would be willing to deliver us from the guilt of our sin still, and be willing to continue to extend great mercy at the work and at the suffering of Jesus on the cross and the power of the resurrection. So the the exhortation is really to open our eyes to the power of God as it's explained that God works and acts in our lives. So that's where we'll stop for the lesson uh, this afternoon. Um, And Lord willing, it'll be uh, next month that we'll get into Hebrews chapter 3. But if there is encouragement that needs to be um, received on anyone's part here this afternoon, If there's just prayers, if there's any sin that should be confessed before the church, um, if there's anything that needs to be made known, please bring it forward while we stand and sing the invitation song.